want to take a moment this morning on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday to encourage you in that way. Friday was the March for Life in uh, D.C., well attended and a reminder to our nation and to those who've turned away from and are in the culture of death, turned away from life, that life is important. Even our own governor in Virginia who's tried to make deals thinking that uh, somewhere along the way it's still okay to end the life in the womb is not okay. That's not who elected him. That's not who, what we represent. And so we went as a church, you know, as Jason read earlier, I love that passage. That's a prayer Paul prayed for the church at the end. He says, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. You know how God is glorified in the church? When we do what he says. Much like how God is glorified in our life. A lot of times we, we will say, I want to glorify God with my life. You can glorify God with your life to the extent that his attributes are clear in what you do. You cease to glorify God with your life when his attributes are not clear. It's unclear who it is that you're magnifying. And so we're just, uh, wanted to take a moment in, if you've got a bulletin today, you can see it's a flyer there, Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center. Uh, they do a lot of great work here in this area and you can support them, secure our code there. And let me encourage you to do that. I know many of you uh, are part of this life movement. You, you adopt, you foster, and that's all part of it. It's taking children that are going to be born and making sure they have a home. So we're glad that uh, we serve in a church that does those kinds of things. Just a reminder, something you know, always on the side of life, especially in an election year, never on the side of death, never on the side of death. And so let me encourage you to... Uh, glorify God in your own life and in the church in that way. All right. I'd like you to, if you would, uh, you know, if you've been with us, we have been working through First and Second Timothy and Titus. It's, a, it's a, uh, a, a series entitled Instructions for the Church for Teaching, Leading, and Equipping. And we are particularly, as we began this section, we were able to title that Guidelines for Public Worship because that's precisely what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, this is precisely how we're to conduct ourselves in the household of faith, which is the pillar and support of the truth. And then as we arrived at chapter 5, really the last part of chapter 5, the first part of chapter 5 has to do with the ministry to widows in the church and what a widow looks like. And with that, all of the legacy of, of uh, holy and faithful living for our ladies starting young all the way up through. If we see that these are honored by the Lord when you're old, they're important to establish when you're young. And then we get to the last part of chapter 5, and we're in the section called Relating to Elders. I'd like to read that through with you, picking up in verse 17. We just started this last week, and so I want to read all the way through down to the end, verse 25. So we'll be in, your, in the open Word of God quite a bit today, as we always are. Let me encourage you to have it open, your tablet, your phone, uh, the actual Word of God there. You can find one in the seat in front of you, but you should have it open. There's going to be a section we're going to go to in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I need you to look at. It's important for us to see it. And of course, if you're in it every day, this is not new for you. Verse 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, verse 18, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Verse 19, do not dis receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Verse 20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. Verse 21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. 
Verse 22, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Verse 23, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. Verse 25, the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Verse 25, likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Let's stop right there. We saw last time from numerous background passages relating to this study uh, that the character of the people of God is in great measure dependent on the character of those who lead them. Uh, the Lord's desire for His people, Israel, was for them to be a set-apart, chosen group under godly leadership so that they would be able to be a witness for the Lord among the nations. It's the reason why He called them out. He gave them the prophets, He gave them the word, and so that they could go out and do it. But we saw in Hosea, they in large part, except for a remnant, failed at that task. And and so God has asked much the same for the church, and we know that God has given oversight of His church to under shepherds who are to lead it well and to help it accomplish the job they are to do. And we get to the epistles, and we begin to read, and we see much of the same thing happening in the early church age that we saw happening in Israel. False teachers were abounding, church leaders turning away from qualifications, uh, from the standards of leadership and the instruction they should be giving and the sound doctrine that's supposed to be part of what they do each day. And this is what we have seen here in Paul's letter to Timothy as he pastors this established Ephesian church planted by Paul, but already far from where they should be. And so all through these letters, we have examples of bad leadership and the results of that bad leadership. And so then we get to the end of chapter 5, and we see a shift here, and I think it's noticeable to you, and I pointed that out to you last week. Paul wants Timothy to know that if he finds leadership that is in alignment with God's actual calling, and the life is aligned with the qualifications of chapter 3, then Timothy needs to know, and the church needs to know, how to treat these men. And so he directs this passage in a very straightforward manner, and he says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, he says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And we saw last time that word elder, which is, in the, is the word presbyteros, here it is in the plural, which is the New Testament standard. At the close of the apostolic era, a plurality of elders for each church. And to that end, Paul addresses Titus in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, and we'll get there and look at it very, very closely when we do get there in our study. But he says this to Titus, he says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint multiple elders, appoint elders, that's in the plural, in every city as I directed you. He didn't say appoint an elder for every city, elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, he says, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Again, much the same qualifications, a uh, little bit of adjustment here. We'll see older children, they can't walk in dissipation or rebellion. These kinds of things are different, but for the most part, same type of qualifications for those who are going to oversee the church. And then it says, verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, 
so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Verse 10, for there are many rebellious men. So there's a lot of men who think they qualify, but they don't. Empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. So again, you see this idea that it's God's steward, uh, an under-shepherd, an under-rower, uh, someone who is a house manager, that kind of thing. And we see all the reasons why people do it for the wrong reasons, but we see the same types of qualifications here listed. In other words, there's going to be a lot of men who don't qualify. There's going to be a lot of men who try to lead the church astray for wrong reasons and without the right qualifications and for the sake of money or whatever it is. So you're to appoint a plurality of godly men who can do this work. And then again, you get back to Acts chapter 20. We looked at another section of this last time, but uh, this passage deals with the church in Ephesus. Luke tells us about Paul's actions. He says, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the Again, in the plural, elders of the church, so multiple men who are there leading. Verse 28, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So again, it just means a plurality of godly men who in a shared leadership uh, model the virtue and the godliness that the Lord has desired for his church. That's everything we looked at. It includes all the standards and all of that one standard of holiness, sharing also that background of a New Testament actual call, the whole First Timothy chapter 3 thing, the two desires that kind of overwhelmed whatever direction you were going on and going in your life, and the Lord called you to the ministry. It has to share those kinds of things. And as the church conforms then to this biblical standard of leadership, it flourishes. And this can make a big difference in the lives of people. The shared leadership is the design of God for His church. This is a group of godly men they're feeding the church. They're leading the church. They're setting the example of holiness and faithfulness and faithfully proclaiming the truth and warning of error and all of those kinds of things, serving with all humility. And churches today are desperately in need of a revival of biblical authority, and they're desperately in need of a revival of careful exposition of the word and a, and a revival of shepherd care for the congregation. Unbiblical forms of church leadership without elders in the lead are bad, but they're no worse than a biblical form of leadership with ungodly men. So both have to be correct. And so the church should have not only a biblical pattern, but also the right group of men. If they're married, their wives must be godly and submit to them. And if they're raising children, they have to be godly. And if they're raised already, they have to walk in godliness. And again, we saw they're called overseers. They're called shepherds. Just takes in uh, many of the jobs that they do. They lead people. They instruct them. They deal with difficulty. They coordinate. They supervise. They make the decisions. They take care of the flock. They feed. They watch out for them. And all these words refer to the same people. And as we've seen, uh, the New Testament uses this term bishop, it uses the term elder and presbyter interchangeably. And this is this plurality of elders that bringing these different spiritual gifts and abilities through which the church is abundantly blessed over and above the ability of one man. So this is very important to understand this. This is the New Testament model. And then it says in verse 17, it says the elders who rule. So those who serve as elders, those who serve as pastors, overseers, shepherds are set over. They're in their primary position. This is the practice. This is the established pattern of the New Testament. It's kind of said after the fact because it's just automatically known. Just obviously, if we understand the New Testament model, this is what they do. They rule. But here's the qualifier. They have to do it, what? 
well. They have to rule well. And of course, this is not written in a vacuum. Obviously, there were some in the church in Ephesus that were not doing it well. Obviously, there's uh, people in the modern church, men in the modern church, who are not doing it well. And Paul has been and will continue to help Timothy deal with them in Ephesus, which becomes the model for us dealing with them as we work our way through these pastoral epistles. But to do it well, then, has everything to do with discharging the duties in a way that there is no room to be called out. Doing it in a blameless manner. This is not subjective. It's objective. What does it mean to do it well? It's listed for us very clearly. And it also has that idea of beauty attached to it. To the Lord, it is beautiful when the church functions as it should, when it is functioning as it should with the right men. And then the church is to measure that well. And that just means that's the right matrix to measure the life, to measure the ministry. It lines up well with what the Word of God says is a successful man of God. Not what the church expects, not what their preconceived ideas of what that's to look like. It is very clearly laid out in the Word of God. And those elder pastors, Paul said, who do it well, who measure up to what the Word of God says is the standard, are considered worthy, it says, of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And that is the first way, and it was principle number one, that the church is to deal with a qualified elder. As he, t- he tells Timothy, if you find these men, do this first, do it with honor. And we saw that this a command from 1 Timothy 4.17. We saw it wasn't isolated, and we went through a number of passages to help you see all of that. Uh, uh, elders who are qualified and do their jobs well, according to the biblical matrix, we saw that's not isolated, and they were all in the plural. And then honor is the Greek noun time. We looked at that very clearly as we closed out. We saw the word is used in two ways, and only two ways in the New Testament. And I took you through all those passages. If you missed that, you can go back and look at that and listen to it. But the first term, it's used in terms of respect and regard. And we looked at a number of scriptural illustrations for that. The other way the word time is used has to do with money or remuneration. And so when we read this, then considered worthy of double honor, you just literally twofold honor. So honor shown in two ways, and that was principle number two. Uh, The first way is respect, and the next way is remuneration. And this understanding is consistent with the understanding of the early church fathers. Many of the early commentators uh, early on had it correct, absolutely correct. Uh, Today, it's just all over the place. It's just very simple. Go back. What did the word intend to to say? What did they understand it to say? That's where it is. Now, it says this uh, twofold honor is to especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, we've looked at this word work before. What does it mean to work hard? Uh, This is the word we've looked at. It's kopiao, present active participle. So it is the habit then uh, to do this is the point of being wearied. That's that work, to to work at preaching and teaching to the point of being worried, to do something. Here's another way you can look at it, exhaustively. And then it becomes the standard. That's what's supposed to happen. The ministry of the word is to be an exhaustive effort. And preaching and teaching, very, very simple. We've looked at these words before. Preaching, by the way, is the word logo. It just means speech. To get an example of that, I think if you think about Old Testament prophets, gave the words of God out. They gave his degrees, his mandates. They reiterated those kinds of things. What God has said is repeated. John tells us that Jesus is the living word of God. So in the New Testament, men preach, repeating a direct mandate from God to respond. That's the idea. Preaching is, this is what God has said. This is your response to it. It's looking for response to what God has said. And the second word is teaching. Didaskalia, that's that's the word in Scripture that's translated doctrine, although it isn't itself here, doctrine. This is the word in Scripture that you're teaching doctrine. 
Teaching doctrine, teaching these things guards against error. It's instructions. It's precepts. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.2, gives us a great example of that. He says this, These things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. That's our word, others also. There's, a certain, there's certain things, things we need to know that need to be passed down. We don't get to make it up as we go. We don't get to change it to be more palatable. Paul says, find faithful men, teach them. They'll be faithful to pass it on. That's the way things are done. These are the doctrines that guard you against error. You don't make up new teachings. You keep repeating and studying the ones Paul passed on to you. And these two things were working together all the time as the, from those in the pulpit, all the time. And those who are giving themselves to preparing the church for works of service, those who are tasked with passing on the teaching so that the church can be mature. Peter reminds us in preaching here, look at this. This is a great example. And you'll see this now that you know what to look for. Preaching is, the, here's, here's, uh, preaching, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. He reminds the church of God's judgment and then says, what's your response? Conduct yourself in such a way that's appropriate for those who come under God's judgment. And then you can move right on and Paul reminds the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 in teaching, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what's he calling to mind? The doctrine of the gospel. As J Jacob prayed earlier this morning, he said, uh, the Bible is really about two things. It's about presenting the gospel that you respond to and then what it looks like to live in that way. And so here's this reminder that you, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I'll hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. What's it look like to have proper doctrine? It's going to look like this. See, Walk in the spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's teaching, isn't it? We understand the Spirit's control over our life helps suppress our desire to do things the body wants to do. So again, you'll see it all the way through the New Testament. These are two things that, are, that you're supposed to be given to in the pulpit. Those who lead the church are to give themselves to it and to exhaust themselves in doing it. And Paul says, when you find men like this, whose hearts are totally given to these things, that will set them apart from false teachers, the self-serving, deceived men you're experienced with here in Ephesus. And when you find that out, find them, take care of them. That's what he's saying. And he would know about the lack of care, and we're going to see that in just a moment. Because, beloved, churches can literally chew up good, godly, diligent, faithful men. They do it all the time. They may have a man from the Lord that they don't love and they don't esteem him and they don't obey him and they don't submit to him or follow or honor or remunerate him in a way that he can live as they should. They don't do it. it happens all the time. Young men coming out of seminaries are ready to go out and discharge their duty to the church and give up the biggest portion of their life for her and literally be devoured by people who dishonor them and discredit them and speak evil of them because they don't do precisely what they want them to do in a way that they want it done or because they go against the grain of some, uh, some would-be Diotrephes who's risen to some prominence in a self-appointed position in some church. This is repeated over and over and over and over. And the modern church has to realize this as much as the first century church had to realize it. And if you're unsure who Diotrephes is, I would encourage you to look up 3 John. It's only a few verses. It's not a compliment. 
Modern churches always seem to have these diatrophies serving on some board somewhere where they expect the elder who God has called to be in a position of overseer with the correct qualifications and the right testimony and the right gifts to bow down to a bunch of laymen who have no biblical authority in the church at all. That gets repeated over and over again. So Paul takes this to task here. And Paul's commands here are just as timely for the modern church as they were for Timothy. And beloved, in 30 years of ministry, I have run into a lot of diatrophies, I will tell you that. And this is principle number three for us. And it's just one that's just obvious. But as we wrap up this uh, verse 17, all elders who do a good job, that's not subjective, it's subjective, compared to the biblical model, Overseeing the church are worthy of honor in both these aspects. All elders who do a good job in this area, all of them who are qualified in the ways the Word of God has said they're to be qualified. But especially, he says, recognize those who exhaust themselves at the most of the, with the most important things. Paul says, take care of them. And he would know these things that we talked about. And so he uses an example from the Old Testament that we've seen before. So in verse 17, look there if you would, or verse 18 rather, he says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And what we have here is something we've looked at before. It's out of Deuteronomy 25. We're going to see it in just a minute. Because this is so um, thorough, I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So can you turn there? Paul really fleshes out in this illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And because, as I told you before, sometimes when you teach through the Word of God, there may be a verse that's abbreviated. So you get the command, but you don't get the support. You don't understand what's there behind it. And so sometimes we put a pause there on a section of Scripture we're teaching verse by verse in, and we'll go somewhere else so that we can explain carefully why this is so important and how this is reasoned out in the Word of God. Because listen, this is, um, this is an issue uh, it comes up all the time. Should we pay him? Uh, and how much do we pay him? And how do we figure all that out? That comes up a lot more than you think it does. And this section will have to be uh, by its size, really a two-part message, but we're going to get as far as we can today. But what I want to do is have you turn to 1 Corinthians 9, and we're going to read. It's a fairly lengthy passage, so that's why I wanted you to have your Bible out. I want you to see this, and so that you'll know that we're doing it correctly. In verse 1, we're going to read all the way through verse 18. So look there if you would with me. So picking up 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. And this passage is coming along right after a section on the freedom in Christ. And if you look at verse, uh, chapter 8, you'll see that he talks about what freedom in Christ looks like and what it doesn't look like. People think today, your freedom in Christ is you're a strong believer. You can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks of you. But what we really understand from the scriptures, if you really are a strong believer and you have freedom in Christ, you're willing to put aside your own rights to make sure you don't cause somebody else to stumble. And so I'm summing up what we looked at many, many years ago, but Paul's coming off that because you're going to see some of that language. And again, I'll just put this little notation in here. It's awkward for me to teach you how to, te how to take care of an elder when I'm an elder who is over you, okay? So understand that I just have to wrestle through this. This is what we're, where we are, and it's awkward for me and probably awkward for you, but let's get through it and we'll just teach it correctly, okay? Look at verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Verse 2. If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. Verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? 
Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Verse 6, or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? Verse 7, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Verse 8, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? Verse 9, for it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Verse 10, or is he speaking to altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. Verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do not we more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Verse 13. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel, verse 15, but I have used none of these things and I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, verse 17, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Let's stop right there. And we see the context of the passage is Paul using himself as an illustration. He's going to show that he had a freedom, a liberty that he could have chosen, but that he didn't. And the reason why he didn't is because someone could have been offended. Paul is dealing with a church that has done anything but honor him. They've been disrespectful to him, dishonoring him. And now they have a lot of uh, insinuations and accusations here that you can kind of read into the text that we're going to look at. And so Paul is dealing with a very disruptive and, and uh, disobedient church that isn't doing what they're supposed to do. And so someone could have been offended and the freedom he could have chosen was the right to monetary support from the church. You can obviously see that's the essence of the passage. He had the right to expect the Corinthian church to pay him money for his ministry and provide for his needs. But Paul chose to be a tent maker all of his life, to earn his own living, provide for his own needs, never exercising the right he had to ask for support. And so Paul uses the first 14 verses to give the reasons why he had the freedom to choose to be supported by the church, which of course has application in the modern church as well and thoroughly illustrates our passage from 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 17 and 18. And then he's going to use verses 15 through 18, which we won't get to really today, to show why he chose to limit his freedom. Now remember, Paul is springing off this attitude of some in the Corinthian church who were saying, we're free to do anything we want to do. We're believers. We can go eat meat offered to idols. We can go up to one of the pagan feasts and we don't have to do what they do, but we can still eat their food. And if someone doesn't like that, then that's their problem, not ours. And so Paul had to correct all of that false thinking and correct their, their trajectory here in the church. And so coming off that attitude, which Paul had to correct, he has a few opening remarks to establish his authority because he always had to remind them that he had the authority to say 
this in the church. So he says this in 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Look down there if you would. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Of course, Paul says, I understand this freedom thing. I understand the freedom to do whatever I want to do. Paul says, I'm qualified to understand freedom in Christ. Do you think I understand my liberty like you do? Maybe, Paul says, a little bit better than you do. Paul says, as an apostle, don't I have liberty? And of course, Paul is the last of the apostles. There are no others. Paul said he was the last born out of time. So we know that it's not passed on to anyone. But here he says, I'm an apostle. I have liberty. I understand what liberty is. And the answer is, of course you do, Paul. And then beginning in verse 3. Paul makes this transition to the questions brought to him by the Corinthians. And you can kind of see the one-sided conversation as it turns into two sides coming out here. He says, verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. So here it is. It's always this, see. It's always this for Paul in the Corinthian church. It's always this in churches all over the place. Unqualified men examining and asking questions and being edgy in their implications. This is what Paul's dealing with here. And again, he addresses questions from the church in Corinth. And the questions appear to have an edge to them. People asking questions in a critical, accusatory way. And their questions concerning Paul's right to be supported by the church. So here in chapter 9, then Paul is going to illustrate this freedom to limit your freedom but we come away with the principles for supporting a pastor or a missionary or a minister. And that's so wonderful for us. We understand where Paul is headed. Paul is dealing with a problem in the church, but we get the principles for this very abbreviated statement that Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And he, in verse 17, he says, give double honor. And we see what that is. We don't see any background to it. And because this is always mixed up in the church conversation, it's always something going on. Should we pay him? Who should we pay? How much should we pay? All that. And, and why should we do it? This answers those questions. And so this makes this very clear and helps us come in then to that uh, section in Timothy uh, very, very well supported. So he's going to illustrate these principles, and we're going to come away with principles for supporting a pastor or a missionary or a minister. And Paul answers the general question, why is a minister worthy of the support of the church? So look at verse 4. We're going to get to see, starting at verse 4, about eight examples, and you can maybe pull out a few others. Uh, Paul is going to give those examples to answer their critical questions and give them an illustration of what it looks like to limit your freedom. That's how he's going to wrap it up. And he's just going to go through all these reasons, and he's really saying at the end, just to foreshadow a little bit, he's saying, hey, I have the same liberty you do, and I could have asked for this, and yet I'm going to set it aside. I have freedom in Christ to do this. I'm an apostle, and I have liberty, and I can do this. And one of the things, though, that I have freedom to do is be supported by the church, and to ask you to support me, and I'm going to set that freedom aside. Because I don't want to offend someone. I'm not demanding you to do anything that I haven't done myself. And then he illustrates this, okay? Now, he addresses three questions from the church that we can kind of pull out of the text. And then he's going to answer them and get to the heart of the issue of his freedom. So look at verse 4. Do we not have the right, he says, to eat and drink? So the question is, don't I have the freedom to enjoy what you enjoy? Their question was likely, shouldn't you just take care of yourself? Why should we be burdened? Paul's answer, I have some needs just like you do. I have the right to ask you to care for them. That's a relevant principle for today as well. Verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? In other words, 
don't I have the freedom enjoy, to enjoy what you enjoy and what they enjoy? Because their criticism, their question was likely, can't you just stay single? You're much more useful as a single guy and we can get more out of you and it's not as expensive to support a single guy as it is to support a family. But Paul says, listen, I have the right to support from you, not only for me, but for our family if I wanted to. Paul says, that's my liberty. That's my right to ask that of you. And that is a relevant principle for the church today. It is the church's responsibility to support its pastors, its missionaries, its ministers, its staff at a level where they can be uh, comfortable and take care of their family. And then Paul got a little sarcastic again and he says this, or do not only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working What's he mean? So the question and the criticism from the Corinthian church is kind of a repeat said in a different way. Why can't you just work and take care of yourself? You can make a good living as a tanner. Paul's answer to them is, I have the freedom to refrain from working a secular job. And again, that is the principle that applies today. Uh, the modern church has the obligation to provide for its staff. And Paul is giving out these by way of a question, but they are really statements of fact. Paul's point is, I have the freedom to do this. And then he's going to give us some examples in a moment. Look at verse 7, if you would. Who, he says, at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense. There's your first example. Number two, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? That's number two. Number three, who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? So three examples, a soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd. And the reason he uses those examples gives us principle number one. It is the usual custom out of the labor comes the living. People know this and they can relate to this. Paul's obvious point is the same holds true for the servant of God. Let's look at verse 8. Paul says an interesting thing here. Verse 8, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? So in other words, I'm not just coming up with these things on my own. We get that a lot about in the Pauline epistles and in pastoral epistles even today. People say, well, women can teach in the church. That was just Paul giving his opinion. And I say, no, you know, when Paul says, um, actually, because of the angels and because of the created order, that's how it is. That's bigger than just local. But this is, so this argument is not new. This argument that Paul, it's just Paul's opinion. Paul says, listen, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment. This isn't just my opinion. The law says these things too. And then Paul gives the next principle based on God's law. And this is identical to what Paul is telling Timothy on how to relate to elders. And that's why this is so important. Look at verse 9. For it's written in the law of Moses, he says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God's not concerned about oxen, is he, verse 10, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? And then he answers the question, yes, for our sake it was written. And this is a quote, as I told you, from Deuteronomy chapter 25, and this is verse 4. And the principle number two is this, God is concerned about people, namely here, those who lead the church, but it also applies to anyone who is laboring. Just like you don't muzzle the ox, if you labor hard, you should be remunerated for it in your job. It's unfair for you not to be. And God put that in Deuteronomy 24, uh, 5, 4, 25.4, not because of oxen, which pass away and have no soul, but because of people, so they could understand how it's supposed to work. It's a long-reaching biblical principle. And in verse 10, we get some more reasons and yet another principle. So look at verse 10. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? 
Yes, for our sake it was written. Here's reason number five. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope. Reason number six. And the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. So two more examples. A plowman. These are guys who are planting. And threshers. These are guys who are processing the harvested grain. And the reason he uses these examples is this. Both of them have a hope. And so Paul's principle number three is this. The minister has a right and should be able to anticipate that out of labor comes reward. It's very straightforward. That's the hope. And Paul makes a direct application here in verse 11. Look there. And also, this is our seventh example. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? This is really shooting straight at the Corinthians. In other words, Paul says, using an agrarian metaphor, if we sowed life-transforming, eternal, everlasting, permanent things, is it too much? Is it too much? You can just hear Paul say, is it really too much to reap material, temporary, momentary, passing things from you? Is this unreasonable? That's the question. Paul says, is it a big deal for you to do that? And the implication is, no, of course not. It shouldn't be. And so principle number four is be generous. And, and that's, you know, I say this, and obviously it has, this backs its way into giving, it backs its way into worship that way, as Jacob encourages you at the end of every service. Uh, listen, you know, all of this has to do with the church being faithful. It all has to do with the church, God being glorified in the church. How is God glorified in the church? By we doing what he says to do, see? And I say this to the church all the time. And, and, and again, this has nothing to do with me. I'm not, I don't have an ax to grind. You take care of me wonderfully. But the question always is for every church, if everyone gave in the proportion that you gave this year, would the church be able to exist? Obviously, there are many who give generously, obviously. But my question for you is this. It all has to do with this, see. If everyone gave at the proportion that you gave and the consistency that you gave, could the church exist? That's a great question to ask yourself as you start a new year. Are you worshiping the Lord with what he's provided and in proportion to how he provides it? Because that has everything to do with this, see. Because it's all a moot point at the church if nobody's giving faithfully like they should. It's a moot point. And this is some of the problem that you have with the diatrophies in the church who sit on boards and like, well, we just don't have the money and whatever. We don't have the money. And most of the time, those outspoken people who are so abusive to those who lead them are the ones who are giving the least when it comes right down to it. So these are very, very important principles. They back into a whole bunch of other things we won't deal with. We teach on, uh, on, on uh, faithful giving, generous giving uh, regularly as, we, as the scriptures come to it. We're not going to jump into it now. But be generous is the principle. And if we just look at, I want to look at verse 12 and just the first part of verse 12. And we'll look at the second part after we see verses 13 and 14 and see Paul's last reason and the principle that goes with it. And you'll see why we're going to skip around a little bit. Sometimes it takes that to get the thought process correctly as you're preaching it. But in verse 12, he says this. He says, if others share the right over you, here's the question, do not we more? There's obviously an example somewhere, right? Uh, maybe Apollos, maybe one of the other pastors there. In Corinth, Peter undoubtedly was being supported by them. Some of the half-brothers of Jesus were receiving some support. Maybe James, maybe Jude from the Jerusalem church. Obviously, there was an example of that going on. So others were being supported at some level. 
And because Paul planted the church in Corinth and he was the first pastor there, perhaps a spiritual father for many of them, perhaps very, very involved in their growth uh, as they came to know Christ and they grew up in discipleship, very responsible. That's why he says, do not we more. Others are receiving support. Share the right, and that just confirms we share that right. Our understanding that Paul is setting a standard of conduct. We share the right. What do these others share with Paul? The right to be what? Supported. That's the whole point. You can't get out of that. Generosity is the principle here. Now look at verse 13. We're going to get example number 8. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? And whenever you see do not know, don't you know, that's, it's common knowledge that. And so if you don't know that, you should know that. And so he's talking, of course, to people with Jewish background. They understand how the temple works. And just like in verses 8 through 10, Paul dips back into the Old Testament and shows that these principles are very long-reaching. And example number eight here is this Old Testament worship set up the model that we have today. And although all of Paul's examples are powerful, he really seems to save his most compelling examples and principles for last. And this is, this is the fourth principle, of course, of generosity. And then this fifth one is here. It's always been God's plan that those who do the work of the ministry are supported by the ministry. This is what would happen in the old economy, in the sacrificial system. People are bringing offerings. You can see this broken down for you in the book of Leviticus. Uh, There were six different offerings that the Jews would bring, and we won't go through all of that. You can read that if you'd like to. I took you through that many years ago uh, so that you could see it. But Paul uses it as an example, so it's relevant for us today. And as you read through it, what you're going to see is this. In every case, there was something for the priest in order for his to to have a livelihood, for his support, for his sustenance. It might come out of that service. And of course, they, they failed at that just as miserably as, the, as sometimes the church does today because, uh, of course, it required them to give sacrificially and give generously and give the right amount and the right things. And then we see later in the Old Testament where the priests had to go out, they started working and they abandoned in their jobs. Why? Because they couldn't live. And so these are things that constantly recycle. So he says that. He says, listen, this, this is the example. This is the ministry from God's plan all the way back that those who minister are to be supported by the ministry. Now look at verse 13, if you would. Do you not know that those who perform sacred sacrifices eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? And he's just drawing their minds back from the new covenant to the old economy. And he just reminds them, listen, this is, the Lord has set this up and set up the support of the priests to come right out of that ministry. Then he connects it to today when he says this. Look at verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. This is not human reasoning. This is not Paul's opinion. It's not just an Old Testament proverb. This has been reiterated by the Lord himself to Paul, and he brings it to the church and says, this is how it's supposed to work. And principle number five is this. It's always been God's way that those who do the work of the ministry are supported by the ministry. Very straightforward. Paul gives them reasons from which they can easily extract the principles. And now look at the last part of verse 12. And you see why we did that because that kind of completed the thought about why it was important for us to understand this is how it's supposed to work even for today. And look back at verse 12. He says this, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. I'm going to wrap up with this. So Stick with me. 
Then we look at the first part of verse 15. But I have used none of these things. So he's laid out this wonderful argument that is so clear for the church to understand about why it's important for that double honor to be in place. And he says, I have used none of these things. I've given you eight reasons and at this point five principles, but I haven't used any of them. I never took anything from you, he said, even though I had the right, I had the freedom to do it. And he just kind of reiterates this illustration of the freedom to limit your freedom. Paul says, don't you think I know what I'm talking about? What I'm asking you to do, I do. In relation to eating and drinking, I know what it's like to take a freedom and put it aside. I know a lot more about it, he says, than you do. And anyone who, any any ministers lived dependent on a faith-based offering understands this very, very well, okay? If you've never done that before, you, you don't understand that you don't, Get your projected out, your projected salary isn't guaranteed like it is at your current work, okay? It's dependent on the faithful giving of people to church. I think you can understand that. And so Paul understands this very clearly. He has needs and he isn't, take, he isn't taking them from the church. He has uh, things that need to be part of his life and he's doing without them. Paul says, I never took anything from you, even though I had the right to do it. You know why? Love for you limited the exercise of the liberty that I had to require this from you. And I'll foreshadow this a little bit because we're almost out of time. Paul felt it would be a hindrance. And so he didn't take that right that he had and exercise it. And that's his principle here. And as Christians, we have rights, rights that can be defended, right? You have the right to do certain things. I mean, that's a tremendous defense of his right, isn't it? He, he made it very, very clear that it's set up in the word of God that he had the right to take support from them. And yet he says, that right can be equally set aside. I want you to look at the last part of verse 12. And this is where we're going to wrap up uh, and pick up next time. He says this. If others share the right over you, do not we more. And we answered that already. Nevertheless, we do not use this right. He says this, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. He waived his rights to support. And he says this, we endure all things. Literally, that is to bear in silence. That's to bear without complaint. Paul says, we endure whatever is deprived. That's what's implied there. Whatever is deprived because he doesn't take in support from the church, we already bear this and we do it. It's present, active, indicative. This is the reality of Paul's life. He bears these things that he doesn't have and he does that because he's setting his right aside. So he's continually enduring throughout his current ministry with them the absence of the things that he has the right to and that he no doubt needs. And we'll look at some of that next time, how he uh, kind of reiterated that to them, what some of those needs were. And then he uses this word, so that we will cause no hindrance. Ingopin, it's a noun. The word is a wartime word. It's one we've looked at before. It has to do with breaking up a road or a path to impede an enemy's pursuit or attack. You could stop the advance of machinery and supplies by creating obstacles and destroying bridges and blocking or pulling up roads, things like that. Paul uses that here. This is how he feels about it. He might say, look, I wouldn't do anything to chop up the highway or tear down a bridge by which the gospel is advancing to you. Even in this church that's disrespectful to him, dishonoring to him, and it's not supporting him, and it has snide remarks about it, whether he needs it or not, and whether they want to pay it or whatever. Uh, just like modern churches get that way, I don't, he says, I don't want to do anything to make it difficult for you to accept the gospel. 
That's why he says, even though I have the right to your support, I don't want you to think I'm in this for the money, so I'm going to set that right aside. He's willing to endure whatever it took, anything, rather than give up those who were questioning him and giving him a reason and giving them a reason to oppose him or give people a reason not to get saved. And beloved, just say this. That was a really sad place for the Corinthian church to be in, wouldn't you say? That he had to make that kind of concession because they were so hostile towards him. A very immature place for the church. But the question we're going to answer next week as we finish up this illustration, is this the norm for the church? What Paul did here, is that the norm for the church? And I think you already have that answer. We're going to look at it next time because Paul does. Paul wraps that up at the very end. And you know because we're in the pastoral epistles and you know what Paul said that they're to do with, with guys who meet those requirements. But we're going to look at it at the last part of this passage and get back to our own uh, as we work through 1 Timothy 5. But is this the norm for the church? And in case you're not sure, come next time and we will answer that question. All right? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We're out of time. Lord, we thank you today for time to be in your word. We're very grateful for its power. We're grateful for how it uh, requires us to conform to it. Jesus himself said uh, to Satan as he was being tempted, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Even the hard ones, particularly the hard ones. It's great to read about the promises. It's great to read about the benefits, about thinking about God's... uh, love for us, unconditional, about our forgiveness, which all things have been nailed to the cross and are no longer against us. And we rejoice in all of that. And we're so grateful that we are secure and that we have a high place to look. We're seated even, uh, even though we're still walking around on earth, the Lord looks at us as seated at the right hand of Christ. What a wonderful thing to think about. And yet in the middle of that, uh, Paul prays a prayer to the Ephesian church, no doubt. And says, may you be honored in the church and in Christ Jesus. So, Father, for that to happen, that's a practical holiness. It works its way out on a day-to-day basis. We can form our thoughts, our preconceived ideas, our prejudices, or whatever it is, uh, to conform to what you say. And we all need that, and we all desire very much for that to be. So whatever it is and however the word offended us today, if it did, and however it it pricked at our conscience or whatever, help us to be soft and respond. You want people not with stiff necks, not with hard hearts, people who will submit themselves to you, willing servants of Christ. Thank you for Berean. Thank you that we are many, many willing servants of Christ. Thank you for the blessing that they are to me and to the community around us and to, to life and to the unborn and to those who are cast off. Lord, all these things are such a joy to my own heart. You're at work in their lives. I pray that we'll be all the more conformed to your image. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake. And all God's people said, amen.